it's funny. I think the biggest things that I liked and respected about this movie are also the things that annoyed me the most. It's so weird because... I- I'm not surprised by that answer, Brandon. It's very on-brand for you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, on-brand, Brandon. Okay. Ah, on-brand. I, I, yeah, um, <laughs> it's funny. We have bars here. Um... everyone, and welcome to episode 34 of Plot Devices. We've made it. This has been a full year of Plot Devices. You can actually go check out our one-year celebration that we did with our Q&A with uh, Samantha Gravai and Sky Merida up on the channel right now as you're listening to this, as soon as you're done. But listen to this first, because we actually have things to say, contrary to popular belief. I am your host, Brandon King, alongside my trusty co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you doing today? It's our anniversary, baby. It is a wonderful day to feel joy, to feel accomplishment, to feel confidence that we will um, stand on this podcast burning hill until we are wiped out, baby. Uh, It feels really good. You know, we've committed to something and here it is a year later and I'm proud of the work that we have posted. So if you're not a fan yet, hopefully you become a fan soon. I am truly appreciative of you. Like, I don't say that enough, but thank you so much for bearing with this and taking the time out of your week to out of every other week to come talk movies with me. It's a super fun time and I really appreciate it hands over my heart for the zoom call between myself and mr king nothing but love here um we love movies we talk about it we're good at it okay yeah. let's keep going we're, we're good at it we think so um specifically that we're doing an all catch-up episode today there's been a lot of movies this year that we just kind of missed out on whether it's scheduling reasons or you know as you guys know we're kind of restructuring the show around midway through the year so we've missed a couple things here and there couple of very big movies that we're going to get to and of course the season two second half or last two thirds because you always talk about the first couple episodes of only murders in the building season two which we'll get to much later in the show for now we have five movies to get caught up on today and we're going to be starting off in the horror territory bodies 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 the latest horror movie we thought it came out a couple weeks ago it did not it is now finally in wide release noah tell us all about it I will try and do my best to keep this um, a, as a compact review as I can. So if you've heard about that movie that's going to star Pete Davidson, we got uh, Lee Pace is in there as well, as well as Rue. Yes, the Amanda Stenberg is now all grown up and she's taken these big roles. Um, not that we haven't seen her in big roles before for anyone uh, who had seen uh, The Hate You Give, um, Everything, Everything. I'm not promoting that movie, but she was also in that. Uh, but here she returns as a the primary focus of this film. Uh, it is a comedy horror thriller is what IMDb lists it as. And all you need to know going into Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is, yes, it is an A24 film, super stylistic, um, very much of its time. Like this feels like such a modern script with the terms that they throw out that I'm sure have been like... Uh, uh, motivated by like Gen Z personalities and whatnot. Uh, but in this movie, um, we have a group of seven friends uh, with varying relationships in between them. Maybe some of them are siblings, maybe some of them are lovers, maybe some of them are a little bit in between. I'm looking at you, uh, Lannisters from Targaryen. Gross. I'm going to talk about Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. This film is about uh, this group of friends uh, really staking out from a hurricane inside this, I say upper class, but really it just has like an upstairs, a downstairs, um, a pool. But to me, I'm like, that's huge. But anyways, they're bunkering down uh, throughout this hurricane, waiting for it to pass. It knocks out their cell reception. And they decide that one of the most entertaining things they can do for the evening is spend the night playing bodies, bodies, bodies. Now, question is, what even is that game? Well, if you've ever played Werewolf, if you ever played, I believe it's called Mafia or something like that. It's the game where 
there is a killer among us. And after every phase, one of us keeps dropping. And the motivation of the surviving members is to eliminate who is the killer among them. Only until it's not a game anymore. And we realize that the bodies that are dropping, hashtag let the bodies hit the floor, they are actually dead. So it is for one funny as hell. I found myself so uh, endeared by like the type of jokes that someone, Rachel Sennett, was able to deliver. She plays a character named Alice, who is all about just like the party, the fun, the flow of the night. We all definitely have a friend who is always just pushing for a good time. And that's what her character is here. Uh, she doesn't dwell too much on the downers, but she is always excited about like the next um the next thing that's going to that's going to be happening for the night uh we do have kind of like the hard ass character in uh mihala herald uh she plays a character jordan who is definitely like the tough you know fists are raised type of friend always willing uh to go to that level with anyone who opposes her and that does cause some conflict between her and our star um in sophie uh, again portrayed by amanda stenberg uh but that's probably my second point is that the relationships between all these characters feel distinct. And when you're watching this film, you're not just thinking that it's a, a slasher film where they just got um, one note characters to play themselves up until the end. All of these feel dynamic enough to where you're intrigued by each individual pairing. Uh, the placement of Lee Pace, who is like this giant man amidst all of these like nor regular hided folk, uh, is hilarious for how they use him. And once you experience that, like the, this movie just has chapters that it moves in that I think his is one of the standout ones for sure. Um, in this film, you're possibly, you know, we have a majority of our cast being female, um, rightfully so. But then you're asking yourself, like, who is the final girl of this movie? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that I will not spoil this movie for you and that you'll have to go check it out for yourself. Uh, bodies, Bodies, Bodies is funny. It's damn thrilling for style alone. Like this movie does feel like just like the party you want to be a part of, the game you want to play uh, for any werewolf enthusiast. Please hit me up. Um I'm going to give this film a eight out of 10. I think it really piqued my interest uh, with its marketing material. And as I was experiencing it, I didn't have any flaws. You know, I think that this is definitely worth the watch. Is it a necessary theater viewing? I would say no, but anytime you can grab a buddy, um, even if your buddy is a cold beverage and sit on the couch, enjoy this movie. I can't wait for it to be on VOD. Uh, Brandon, did you have any interest in checking out Bodies, Bodies, Bodies? Oh, I'm sorry. Let me go ahead and plug the director. This is directed by Helena Rain, who doesn't have many uh, directing credits. Her other film for directing is Instinct, which I'm unfamiliar with, but uh, very proud of her work here. Hopefully she pops up in the future as well. Yeah, I was literally just going to say Instinct was actually shortlisted for the Academy Award for a foreign wow. film in 2019. Same uh, cinematographer as well, Jasper Wolf, who did a film called Monos, which is stunningly good. I had heard interesting about it, and you actually kind of uh, had pointed to me just like, oh, maybe you could. Like, it's more comedy. It's more not coming of age, but kind of slice of life, you know, teens getting into this adventure kind of thing. That Campy. Yeah, I got a lot of camp to it. Um, I, I do want to ask you, because it's been fairly polarizing, because I've heard people either absolutely adore this movie or cannot stand it. And I know that where you seem to stand on more of the positive end of it. Do you get where that polarization is coming from? I think that this movie can be polarizing because of its subject. Like, I think that these are 20 somethings who definitely have a lifestyle that maybe not everyone understands or not everyone can, can get the comedy of. And so if you're watching it, expecting like a sincere, thrilling slasher film, 
understand that this isn't like when you sit down and you're watching the movie, that's not what you're signing up for. Like you're really signing up for, yes, a whodunit, but all with a, with a layer of comedy to it. Like you really, you really can't take these characters or situations too seriously because I think that will end up ruining like the enjoyment that you can experience just by taking it in um, and taking it in fresh. You know, if you haven't seen or heard much about it, you know, go take a friend or two and go uh, check out the movie. I think you'll all have a laugh. And for anyone with polarizing um, opinions, I know definitely one in my inner circles has one. Uh, we invite your comments into our DM section or our inbox. Uh, we'd love to have some discourse on here. Maybe even invite you on for like a, a, a duke em out portion where we can battle our opinions, okay? Hey, but both of them are valued. We are going to transition now to another solo review. This is for my co-host, Mr. King, and he is going to talk to us about, oh, I mean, something we are, Brandon, we are all too familiar with it, okay? This is the unbearable weight of massive talent. This is the second feature from Tom Gormican, who, if any of you saw, um, what is it, that awkward moment with Miles Teller, Michael B. Jordan, uh, very kind of small comedy, didn't really get stupid. No, that was his first movie. That now he is back eight years later or something like that with this, where apparently he literally wrote a letter to Nick Cage saying, hey, I love you. I want to make this movie. Nick Cage actually turned him down a bunch of times and now he's doing it. So what is The Unbearable Weight of Mastel? Well, you've probably heard of it. It's the movie where Nick Cage plays the role of a lifetime, Nick Cage. Basically a fictionalized version of himself. He's a struggling actor. He is a divorced dad who is previously married to Olivia, played by Sharon Horgan, who I love, um, and his 16-year-old daughter, Addie. Uh, he's working for an agent played by Neil Patrick Harris, who's kind of just getting him whatever it can tell about. He has this great scene early on where he auditions actually for David Gordon Green, who directed the new Halloween movies. Uh, and it's a really fun scene where you just kind of get to see how much overacting Nick Cage can actually do just at a moment's notice and how much he loves the craft. And we'll get into it. Anyways, he gets invited to perform at a birthday party for some sort of uh, Spanish entrepreneur played by Pedro Pascal. He meets a guy named Javi, who is seemingly running an olive orchard kind of thing like that. They quickly bond over their love of his career, over cinema and just, you know, family and all these great things until uh, Tiffany Haddish and Ike Barinholtz show up as two CIA agents. I was like, yeah, Javi's not a good guy and we need your help to take him out. And of course, Nick Cage is like, but I'm an actor. And they go, yeah, that's why it works out because he also like really likes you and you know, you can get into his compound. There's a whole subplot with the daughter of a Spanish politician who Javi has apparently taken captive. And it all leads to this confrontation between how will, you know, Nick get out of this, you know, hidden fortress alive, get back to his family. I went into this skeptical. I had heard some really good things. I had heard some really fun stuff coming out like South by Southwest and a couple of like the festival circuits like that. And I admit, like, aren't we all a bit of a fan of the cage? I mean, you know, the face off. I mean, for me, the National Treasure movies, um, like, it, it, the list goes on and on. And a lot of those movies are referenced in here. Kick ass. I'm talking, uh, hit oh, girl and dumb. hit girl uh, and help big me. daddy and big daddy, baby. That, yeah, Nicholas Cage, he has range. Okay. Who can deny totally. the cage man that he has range? Of course he does. Pig. Are you kidding? Yeah, which I still haven't seen. And Mandy, which they reference in this movie, which is really cool of them. Um, yeah, it just goes on and on. And the movie loves Nicolas Cage. And Nicolas Cage loves being Nicolas Cage in this movie. And I think on some level, I really do get the appeal of this movie. And I, I enjoyed a fair amount of it. Like, especially, I will say, once it gets to the actual Olive Orchard and we get to see Cage and Pascal go at it. First of all, for as good as Cage is, and he's great in this, Pascal steals the movie. He is so good in this. He completely steals the scene. 
He nails the comedy, which was not something I was totally familiar with Pedro Pascal doing, but he can absolutely nail it. And at certain points, he understands that he's in a narrative picture much more than Nick Cage does. I think Cage is much more concerned about like the meta text of it all, because this is very much a movie that, yes, is yes, is trying to examine Nick Cage's career and kind of star status, but also like the idea of cinema and how that can kind of bring things together. It's purely a narrative picture that relies on kind of the meta text around who Nick Cage is. It's really fascinating. It goes on a bit too long, which is ironic because it's under two hours. I think the second half really flies by a bit better. I think the first 20 or so minutes when you're actually getting the setup, I found really grating. I know it's supposed to make this version of Nick Cage just really unlikable and arrogant and pompous, and I just didn't really get it. And then around a certain point, again, like midway through, once the whole CIA plot comes into play, I was like, oh, I kind of get it. Like, this is his character arc. This is where we're supposed to be following this character. We're not supposed to necessarily love him from the start. And by the end of it, he does kind of become the version of Nick Cage that he's always wanted to be. There's actually a younger version of himself that he sees who is also played by himself, credited under the name Coppola, which I think is cool because, of course, Nicolas Cage is a Coppola, a member of the French Sport Coppola family. And I think that's really cool because it actually offers this kind of insight into his own psyche throughout the movie that goes beyond just whatever the big action sequences or whatever the big joke is and things like that. Again, I think at the end of the day, I wanted to love this movie. And I think if I really bought into the shtick of it all, I could have. And if you do, great. Like the movie does a really great job at just drawing you into the text, the subtext, the ideas of it all. And again, just the overall humor of it all. There's actually a great conversation between Pedro Pascal and Nicolas Cage where they're trying to figure out what uh, Javi's movie is supposed to be. And they kind of bring up all these different ideas at once. And it kind of learns back to the idea of the movie where it starts as one thing and then becomes like 10 different things all at once. I appreciate that. I just didn't necessarily love it for what it was doing. When I look at this movie and I hear your description of what the plot involves, it seems like a lot more than just Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal hanging out like in this nice beach house, which is all I saw promo material of. So how would you present this movie with a more intentional title, I guess, and and if it would help viewers understand it better? Because I think that it's a different movie than what I had pictured in my head. Figuring it out, maybe? Because I, I think that's kind of what it is, because Nick and Javi in the movie are kind of similar characters. They're both very concerned with their family, with their legacies and like that, but they're doing it very different ways. And actually, by the time we get to kind of, spoiler, when secrets are revealed later in the movie, I will simply say that when that point happens, you really see them both as very identical characters. Like, they both have the same kind of struggles. They don't want to betray each other, but they know they have to for, you know, the various reasons that have been brought upon them. And it kind of makes this great kind of parallel to where... They're each kind of figuring out where they want to take their lives. Like Javi obviously has the family business, but, you know, he wants to be a screenwriter. Nick wants to be, you know, a superstar and an idol to his family, but he also wants to be, you know, the artist who appreciates the hundred years of cinematic legacy. So it's got those things in It's a movie that's more complicated than you might initially give it credit for. It's very funny. The action sequences are really great. And if you are at all a fan of Nicolas Cage, you are going to find something to love in this, particularly the scenes where it actually goes into his filmography and his style of craft. I know a lot of people have been fascinated with that for ages. For me, I know people were going really high for it. It's a solid seven and a half for me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I enjoyed a lot of the comedy. I think, again... Pedro Pascal and Nicolas Cage's dynamic is phenomenal, and I would absolutely pay to see them in something where they actually get to use outside of the weight of all the meta texts and everything around it. But again, just as is, it's a really fun time. It's super enjoyable. You know, if you get a chance to see it, it is it is available to rent on VOD. So please go check it out. I do think it is fun, and I think there are a lot of people out there who adore this. I just ne- wasn't necessarily on board. We're going to move on to the nicest of boys, the one who we have all been looking forward to seeing 
Marcel, the shell with shoes on. If you watch the original shorts, this is now a feature-length movie from A24, of all people. 90-minute, super cool, adventure, funny time movie. We'll get into it. Noah, what exactly is this about? A project that only brings delight to my memory whenever I think about it. Um, I think that for anyone who is unaware, I would be surprised. But there was these string of videos that existed on the internet, um, whether it be YouTube or, you know, I, I don't know where these videos ended up, but it was about this little shell with shoes on and his perspective on the world that we live in. So of course he lives in the human world, our world, and he just has this innovative way of approaching his day-to-day life because of how small he is. So uh, videos that I remember would be of him talking about, and I'm saying him, this is a character voiced by Jenny Slate for any fans of like Big Mouth or uh, she appeared in Everything Everywhere. Uh, She has many things, but uh, she's excellent as the voice of Marcel capturing like a very innocent uh, childlike, like I don't think we know the age of Marcel, but we we get the idea that he's, I would say like kind of teen, like maybe like preteen, but definitely mature. You know, I don't know how to speak to a mollusk maturity level, but in Marcel, the shell with shoes on, we get a, we get a full length film that has to do with his journey living in an Airbnb home with his Nana. Her name is Nana Connie. And it is only them two members who are left there after a breakup with the original homeowners, the rest of their shell community, they end up being separated and being a shell that is an inch tall. Marcel has no means or believes he has no means of regaining contact and reforming that community he once had. Um, That is until a documentary filmmaker Dean Flesherkamp, who is actually the writer-director, steps in as Dean. And who Dean is, is an independent filmmaker who starts recording Marcel and creates this documentary that he wants to share with the internet. Um, And eventually it sparks the adventure for uh, members both uh, inside the home as well as outside the home to try and get Marcel his family back. And that's all you need to know going into it. It is, uh, it's so lighthearted. It's so soft. And I think that Brandon and I, I'm hope have similar uh, takeaways for this film. So before we start getting into the meat of it, Brandon, I do want to hear from you, your top level uh, for one expectations going in and two, just what the experience was like seeing the shell as our primary focus for this 90 minute film. Well, I never did watch the shorts, so I was coming into this mostly blind. I mean, I love Jenny Slate. I, you know, she's done dozen, two dozen things that I love. Those watch Gifted, by the way. She's fantastic in that. Um, and I was kind of familiar with her and Dean Fletcher Camp's history. They were married before this, and then while the movie's in production, they got divorced, I believe, or they broke up. And so this is kind of still them working together as a team. They co-wrote this with uh, Nick Paley, who's also one of the co-editors behind the film. And so I was curious to see how that team coming back together, because I think the last short was like 2014, I want to say. Whenever the year was, Brandon, it's a long time coming. Like Marcel had been kind of a a staple in history and that's where we left him. I was very surprised that this was picked up for a a film. Well, like I'm also surprised it's A24 necessarily because they've been trying to necessarily get into maybe not IPs, but more recognizable kind of familiar storytelling between weirdly everything everywhere all at once is not necessarily, you know, a general story, but it kind of becomes one. Um, So I wasn't necessarily shocked that they picked this up. It's going to be 90 minutes of sweetness. 
I love it. It's so much fun. Uh, it's so sweet and kind. I think that is a credit to really two things. I think it's a credit to Jenny Slate and Isabella Rossellini, who you didn't mention, voices uh, Nona. Um, she's fantastic in this. And I think their dynamic is just so sweet and lovely. And you can tell there's history there and there's never a moment where you could tell like, oh, they were recording in different booths or like maybe their script direction wasn't necessarily. No, like they're all just in the same space. And you firmly believe that they are a grandmother and grandson shell pair, which is, you know, astounding, but like it totally works. And they are the emotional core of it. It just works. The other thing I think is just the story itself. Like there's a universality of finding a place where you belong and the idea of Marcel being feeling so small in a world that just seems increasingly bigger. Like for us, even as people, I felt like this kind of out of body experience being like, oh, I feel small in like the world and the universe. How could someone, you know, one one hundredth of my size feel? And so who also has a different perception of things like Alan, the the dust ball is his pet, you know, the uh, oh, God, what is it? The, you know, the tennis ball rolling around like there, there's such like little things in there. The film constantly piles on just like. Marcel thinks different and we need to get into his space. And it just does it throughout the entire 90 minutes. That itself, like perspective is everything in this film, a scale and scope. When we see Marcel, Marcel, Marcel's um, world, uh, Connie, the Nana puts it so beautifully, uh, Marcello. And he says that he says that she has an accent because she comes from a different part of where he's from. And that he just means the garage. And that was one of like, this movie has these, hilarious moments that don't come across as funny to Marcel because it's strictly funny because of how different he sees the world much to Brandon's point. Um, and they are able to balance that with like kind of heavy, heavy stuff like Marcel and his relationship with his grandmother, Connie, um, you see her health dwindling throughout the film, especially in the early stages. And you start to understand what, what road could be, what awaits their relationship and uh it, no that's that's tough to to sit with and the film still is able to handle it with like in an enjoyable manner and in one that doesn't make you like you're not going to walk out going oh i regret feeling for this movie no you'll walk out saying i'm so happy this movie allowed me to feel what i did because it 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 had done it so naturally and it had done it so uh effectively you end up really um empathizing or sympathizing with Marcel and you want him to succeed in his journey. Uh, they have a lot of soft and tender scenes in this film between Marcel and Connie or be it Connie and uh, Dean, who is the doc, who is the documentary maker uh, who just being a voice is so entertaining. Like I was so happy he was there with me to kind of guide us along Marcel's life and, and what was being captured. Um, this movie works so well because if it is like a soft, delicate moment that we have to kind of slow our excitement down for, you don't get bored because you're still looking at, at at these beings who are an inch tall and whether they're having a serious discussion over the plate of dinner, which is actually like a quarter or they're on their way up a wall and they're using or, honey. Or they're, to they're trying popcorn for the first time. <laughs> they're trying popcorn for the first time. Like whatever kind of situations that seem like, oh, we've seen this before. You have not seen it in the world of Marcel. And I think that that's why it's so worth uh, experiencing and checking out. Uh, I have a question for you, Brandon, and that is going into this movie, I didn't expect the back and forth um, 
between Marcel and Dean. But eventually I was very on board with the film having that structure of, oh, where are we at? Oh, it's okay because Marcel's going to check in with Dean. Like there, this isn't a movie that you just put on and go. This is a movie that like you're kind of guided at each point. At least that's how I feel while having that narrator present. Uh, did you enjoy that relationship? Did you, uh, did you mind it at all? It's funny. It goes to the idea of this movie being about a weird amount of things. One of which I think is the kind of wall that documentarians kind of can set up between themselves and their subjects. And for the most part, initially, Marcel and Dean are kind of separate. Like Dean is asking the questions. Marcel is kind of doing his own thing, kind of figuring out how this all works. And by the end of it, it feels like a kind of mutual situation. Like Dean becomes as much of a story. Spoiler, you do eventually see Dean at some point, but it's very minimal. And it's to the point where you can tell there's an uncomfortable nature about it because of what Dean outside of the film and inside of the film is trying to make whatever this out to be. And I think it's this kind of really subdued approach to it. Like it could feel so grand of, you know, there's a moment where Dean takes Marcel outside and it could feel like this huge thing. And it does to Marcel. It doesn't feel like it to us. It's all mostly like in the car. There's a great scene where Marcel is getting motion sick for the first time and it's hilarious. But Oh, yes. And he does it again and again. And it's perfect. <laughs> He's so apologetic and it's it's so good. He's experiencing new things. And like, that's kind of the beauty of it, where he also has to get Dean to kind of come out of his shell. Dean is dealing with a breakup, which also goes to a bit of the meta text, because again, he and Jenny Slate were in the relationship during this. So I can, it's kind of interesting seeing him talk about his spouse who is no longer there when his spouse is voicing the character that he's interacting with. It's this weird kind of back and forth that I noticed throughout the whole thing. When we talk about performances, yeah, Isabella Rossellini, who played Connie, she emulates some of the like fighting through that pain that comes with her condition or her state. And this is a shell. Like I was like, why am I feeling so sad over a shell? But it's because of uh, how how she can move you just with speech alone. Um, she's able to even have someone like Dean who is impenetrable to Marcel's kind of questioning. But when it comes to Connie, uh, he's able, like she's able to break down any kind of barriers that he has set up for himself because of, because of how wise she comes across and that is that is alone to her performance. So kudos to Rosalina. I was very much a fan. And the great thing about that is that, well, you can make the criticism like, well, it's a bit light on story. Like it's kind of just one storyline going throughout the whole thing. I disagree. But I think there's a great thing later on where, you know, in, in talking about the things the movie is about, it's also kind of about social media. And there's that thing of like, Milna recognizes the value of social media before Marcel does. It's like, no, you should use this to like find it because I'm not going to be around for that long and I want you to be happy and live your life. And Marcel is very trepidatious of it. And it provides these moments of conflict where every time it pops up, you're like, oh yeah, this is still a story point and I still care about both of these characters. It doesn't feel like, oh God, you know, the melodrama or some other cliche is setting. It actually feels like real conflict that a, that a child and their grandparent would have. Without butchering the point of like, this movie's so light, lighthearted. Um, no, if you're looking for a movie that just is able to be calm and it is able to like, you know, be enjoyable and exciting all while still like not raising your heart rate too high. Uh, this movie's definitely that. It, it has me feeling emotions. It has me uh, in awe at Marcel's world. And um, I mean, I'm so happy we have this one iteration and I can go back and like watch the older videos for nostalgia. Um but I think this did what it had to do for continuing like the legacy of Marcel's character and kudos to the production team behind it for it being able to craft a story that didn't feel forced for this type of situation. 
was really quick going to say shout out to uh, Liz Tunkel, who we've already mentioned all the little things around the house, which most of this story takes place in, by the way. It's mostly just in this entire Airbnb, but she makes all of it just work so well, whether it's making, you know, a table into a million different things or making like the garden into like this massive, you know, landscape kind of figure. It just works so well in the context of the movie. And I need to give that a shout out. Brandon, I want to give it a 10. Because I, re- I, I'm gonna give it a ten. Not that I want to. It deserves it. Okay. Let's go. Uh, this movie is ten grains of sand next to Marcel the Shell. It has all the emotions that I think you'd want out of a movie that is not set up to frighten you, not set up to thrill you, but it's set up just to make you feel good. And I think it it comes across so naturally. And um, the performances are stellar. Just watching this, it almost activates like your inner child in the terms of the type of innovations you would put together or the imaginative nature of that child, which is part of him entirely. Like Marcel will probably have that imagination stick with him forever. And it just comes across so, so nice and sweet. And I have nothing but rose heart shaped eyes, things to say about it. So I feel bad. I'm giving eight and a half. Okay. I'm crying. (laughs) <laughs> no <laughs> tell, tell me why tell me what let, let us know look make no mistake this movie is delightful and i think more than that i think it's the first a24 movie that I could recommend to anyone i think anyone from 5 to 50 to you know 8 to 80 i think anyone can enjoy this really i don't think that there's anything like too big or too scary for kids i think every bit of subtext for the adults i think can work find the fact that it's just you know we didn't talk about the animation, but like there's like four different layers of stop motion and set design and CGI that really just comes together in these characters and all feels just impeccably real for the screen. I will say the ending I wanted a bit more of, it almost ended perfectly and then it drags on for another couple of minutes and I just would have loved to trim that off. I think towards the middle, once a certain event happens, I go. I went back to the idea of like, oh yeah, the conflict between Nana and uh, Marcel is great. It goes on for a bit too long. And I also found some of the musical bits a little too distracting. I found like they were kind of trying to tie back into like the quirkiness of it all. And I didn't really vibe with that. That being said, those are all very small things. This is a very large recommendation for me. Again, everyone should go and see this. I'm, I'm a little sad A24 has kind of butchered the wide release on this because it hasn't gotten the wide release I think it deserves. But if you can seek it out, once it gets on VOD, 100% watch this. Jenny Slate and Isabella Rossellini are to die for in this. The, you know, again, the second design, the actual look, and again, just the ideas of it. It's so universal and it's about a million different things that we can all relate to. So please go see this. It is delightful. Moving on now to our next picture. It is a Netflix release that came out some time ago, uh, but Brandon and I needed to clear up some rooms. That way we can make sure uh, we covered it on the pod. So we are discussing the animated Apollo 10 and a half. This is released on Netflix and Brandon's going to tell you all about the plot. Yeah, I don't remember why we missed this. Like, it was a new Richard Linklater movie that we just kind of dropped off. And I was like, I don't remember why, but I guess it was just a packed week. Uh, Apollo 10 and a half. This is the newest, again, project from Richard Linklater. His newest um, rotoscope animated movie after uh, Skinner Darkly and, oh God, what is the other one? Um, Waking Life. Waking Life. Thank you. Um, This takes place in the 1960s. It's relatively autobiographical and... The way the movie paints it, it's very hot biographical. Uh, we follow a young kid named Stanley. He is the youngest, I believe, of six siblings uh, growing up in Houston, Texas, right around the turn of uh, 1969. Again, just right outside of uh, all the things going on in NASA. And as they kind of describe in the movie, the older Stanley is narrating the movie, voiced here by Jack Black, who kind of goes into this spiel about how, you know, the 60s were this turn of like, yes, the Vietnam War was happening, yes, civil rights was happening, but like if you were in the suburbs of most of America, you were kind of looking at you know, all the space age stuff. You were looking at how everything was like bright and new and shiny and 
you know, what was going to be the next thing of tomorrow? You could live on the moon in 50 years. Haha, ha, that totally happened. Um, but the movie is basically, it follows two different plot lines. We see Stanley growing up and kind of going on with his family in that. We also see a plot line that may or may not be true, which is Stanley is approached at school by two basically men in black NASA officials voiced by Glenn Powell and Zachary Levi, who basically tell him, hey, we built the uh, we built the new Apollo capsule a bit too small. And like your test scores and your science scores are like off the charts. We want you to come down to NASA and like help us train for it. And so Stanley does. And he goes through like, you know, the simulations and all the kind of uh, psychological testing and all these things to eventually maybe getting on the moon. We're not entirely sure which is correctly right. And Jack Black as the narrator is kind of leaning us towards both ways. He doesn't really want to remember one way or the other. This is really interesting. I did mix on Linklater's kind of rotoscoping stuff. I didn't love Waking Life, but I thought Skinner Darkly was pretty good. Um, I do love Linklater as a filmmaker. I think he's incredibly talented. And I was curious to see how he could take his own kind of autobiographical experiences, again, growing up during the space race in Texas and actually pin it to something like this. Noah, you watched this as well. Were you into this? This is a film that I walked into thinking, okay, this is going to be a film like about the space race and about this boy who is afflicted by it or uh, sorry, affected by it in his community and his social circles. And we'll see how it turns out. Like maybe it's just about their family. I don't really know, but let's sign up for it. And then I start the movie and I'm getting this narration from who I think is Zachary Levi, but it's actually Jack Black. Cause I was confused on like who the starring role was going to be. Um, I'm so delighted, too, to hear Jack Black in, you know, just, I don't know, just on my screen because it, it had in been some of, time. In kind of a subdued way. Absolutely. No, he's not like eccentric Jack Black like Jumanji here. He is, you know, I'm a normal person and here is my life story. And that's the flow of this movie is you have the beginning, which is like the ominous approaching of the men in black to the students out in the kickball field and the presentation of an opportunity for this young boy to go to space and then we get a flash cut to when he's in a simulate or he's in a like simulated pod and he throws up. And then you go like, Oh, like we're going to learn all about his trials and tribulations on becoming an astronaut for NASA or something of the sort. But then we don't get that immediately. We flash back to a time period where we have everything about social structure, like broken down for you in this uh, 60s, 70s. Right. So we get, um, what life is like when you have hazards all around you, be it noxious fumes, um, uh, careless, uh, careless playfulness from the kids, or I think um, abusive practices from like the adults in playing society. With bottle rockets. Playing with bottle rockets, getting spanked by the principal, um, having uh, having your porno magazines like ratted out by your sisters and your dad takes them away from you. Like it's so much a spectacle into what life was like back then that I was intrigued start to finish. I think that I got more than I bargained for when I signed up for this movie, because instead of just a movie strictly about space and science and rockets, which would have been okay. I got a authentic story that just reminded me of, I didn't grow up in that in those decades, obviously, but I am reminded of what it's like to be growing up as a, to what it's like growing up and how your perspective is always changing with the new things you learn. Uh, funny scene that I remember is like the comments Stan makes about his dad drinking beer while driving and how it wasn't against the right. law just yet. It was just, you couldn't be legally in intoxicated. And then they have this mention. It's like specificity is what makes this film shine. It's like there are recountances of 
very specific ways of life, whether it be eating a, a half frozen sandwich the next day at lunch because you, you know, you, they didn't have enough time to thaw in the morning. Um, back to the dad, he's drinking beer, but he pops the, the like clip of the top of the can off and throws it in there. And, and Jack Black, his character mentions like, and that did that was known to like, it was like swallow or something. Yeah. Die a year from that. <laughs> Some people have died from swallowing that, but the dad did it just as like a, it was either a ritual thing. Um, and then he was so against littering, but he threw stuff away in his car. Like this movie is not backing away from very specific detailing. And that's why I think it shines because you watch this movie and you go, I, I now I have this takeaway of, of the way of life. And it feels well-rounded. It feels like I understand um, what him and his friends would do during that, during that era or what watching TV was like when it was a struggle just to get reception or to get, you know, a signal from the antennas. Like these are kind of, there are a lot of tokens from these decades that like have, have made its way into like my childhood, like, you know, yes, setting up an antenna or yes, like scrambling for food, running around with a bunch of kids doing reckless things. And it was nice to see that all again now as an adult. So maybe I'm approaching it from that perspective where like as an adult, I'm reflecting along with this character Stan, uh, be it different time periods, but still uh, retaining those emotions, those reactions. Uh, Brandon, is, is that on par with your takeaways or tell me how did you really, how did you take in this film and what did it mean to you? funny i think the biggest things that i liked and respected about this movie are also the things that annoyed me the most it's so weird because I- i'm not surprised by that answer brandon it's very on brand for you, <laughs> hey, you on brand brandon okay ah, on brand, I, I, yeah, um, <laughs> it's funny we have bars here um no like i as we've established on the show i am any type of fan for any kind of non-mainstream animation and like we don't see a lot of rotoscoping animation specifically in north american animated films and i was excited to see again what link could do i think it's like a decade after scanner darkly like what he could do with the technology in this again with something so personal and yeah it's good like it's charming it's you know very slice of life the story kind of fades away by a certain point and then comes back once the actual moon landing does happen and i can respect kind of the ebb and flow of it all and again like uh we didn't mention milo coy who i believe is his first acting role uh this is the voice of young stanley where jack black's the adult and yeah he, he, they're both good um they're certainly performing what i think link later is very in depth about writing with the script and i think a lot of this film comes down to the writing versus the actual performances themselves and i think that leads into the biggest eh factor that i had into this which is that it is so unbelievably specific to 1969 and specifically like Americana in 1969. Like, again, going back to the idea of the space race, the idea of just like, yeah, you know, the world does kind of suck, but we're not going to really pay attention to that here. Cause like, look at all this shiny stuff. And that's again, not everybody. That's just a massive generalization. And it's a generalization the movie makes. And especially I couldn't fail with like during the scenes where like Stanley is talking about, you know, all the new programs on television, all the new board games, just like, look at all these cool things and not going to like the fact that, like, yeah, my teacher spanked me, which I get it. Different time, different area. I get that there is a specificity to that. And I also get that there's a line towards the end where um, Stanley's parents are talking about like, well, he's not going to remember everything exactly the way it was. That's just kind of how childhood brains are developing. And like, we kind of have the same thing. Like, we don't remember our childhoods necessarily as much. And as an exploration of childhood, especially during such an overwhelming time, you know, such as the Apollo missions, I totally get it. I just didn't love it a lot. And at times it got a bit too boomer nostalgia for me and not in like a totally endearing way. I'll take it. We're discussing now the fact that like this movie, it had an opening that really 
thrust it into like this movie's going to be about Stan and how involved he is on this space yeah. like adventure. Right. And then we're, you know, instead we're doing the, like you say, slice of life stuff. Um, I admired how like they were teaching us about like how the girls would want to straighten their hair, or, like, you know, the types of uh, corners that they would try and cut uh, for fun or just for the, the, you know, the next thing that they wanted to do the next fad. Sometimes it was dialing numbers on a, on a push phone and they were able to make music out of it. And so that, that type of stuff like really enthralled me. Like I, I, but then, you know, the core plot of it all, this space venture, it, it falls through the cracks. You forget about it, but then you're reminded like, Oh yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's coming on TV. Like there's going to be a rocket launch. There's all these things that are about space, but back to like my life. And then I found myself more intrigued by all of the ways of life during his childhood over like him landing on the moon. That to me was just a point I already knew, you know, we all know what landing on the moon looks like, uh, allegedly. Um, we all know what landing on the moon looks like. And to see that again, even if it's animated, you know, it was cool, but it wasn't as powerful or as moving to me as the day-to-day structure of his family and his friends and his his own life. Yeah, and it feels very much looked it out of something like, you know, Days and Confused or Boyhood or Everybody Wants Somewhere. There isn't really a main structure to it and you're kind of okay with it because you like the character so much and you like just kind of the vibe presented for itself but here it's mostly just stanley as a character like his other siblings don't really get characters and if they do it's basically just archetypes that stanley kind of remembers them as like oh this is my sister who is totally into music this is the one who is you know really just into like the monkeys as like you know beauty icons or like this is my older brother who picked on me my older brother who likes vanilla as an ice cream flavor because he was always just content that was funny i like that um and again, I also like how when the moon landing does happen, they're not just, there's such a perception of the moon landing being like, oh, everyone was just glued to their screens. Like, no, like people had other things to do and they weren't just so locked into every screen during every facet of their lives. And I thought that was kind of fascinating to be like, oh, why are you getting up? Because I have something to do. Like, I kind of found that fascinating. And by the time the big moment comes, stands asleep on the couch. So yeah. it, it ends up, it ends up going out like a, like a match, you know, where it's even at its most climactic or what the movie wants you to believe is the most climactic and maybe that's a message or maybe that's an underlying thing i don't know but i'm ready for ratings if you have no more comments brandon i did want to make just one small note which is that i do love the animation i specifically love how when they go to like archive footage either about like nfl games like uh, jfk's to the moon speech they have this like weird cell shading change they do the animation and i thought like oh that's super cool like that's a really great artistic choice I was definitely intrigued by the animation. I was never like batting an eye on it. Like once I, once I watched it for like five minutes, I was like, oh, okay. Like I'm, this doesn't seem weird at all. Like it just, it, it's so, it, it's weird. Cause they use Zachary Levi's, you know, it's his face. Like I would assume like a motion capture, but I wonder how many actors they did that for, because we know that Stan of course was Jack Black and that's not Jack Black. <laughs> but um, I, I'd, be, I'd be curious of like how many characters actually, they translated to the screen for that reason. But yeah, just on the animation front or like technical front, I don't know if this type of animation is for me, to be honest, That's but fair. I know I know I like it better than Claymation because Claymation is terrifying. That being said, I think moving on to ratings, I did enjoy this movie. I would go back for a rewatch, not if I was looking for something, you know, to be really moved by or, or something that's going to like shake my evening. But if I wanted to put something on in the middle of the day and I wanted to just enjoy, like this is, I think this is another feature that is, it has a semblance of like, I don't know, like peace and like very calm um, 
even as they talk about like the threat of looming missiles of looming nuclear uh, crisis. Uh, surprisingly, I just, I found, I found ways just to be, you know, content with this funny enough. So this for me is going to be a seven and I'm going to bump it up to a seven and a half for the animation front. Um, I was, I was happy. I got to knock this off for our catch-up list. Going just a bit lower with you at the seven out of 10. I respect the hell out of the fact this movie exists. I think that Richard Linklater, we always say this to the Linklater movies, he made his most personal movie, but I think this is genuinely like one of his most personal storytelling. You can tell that he went as much back to his childhood and his family and his idea of what was possible back then as possible. And I really do appreciate that exists in the format that does specifically in the rotoscoping animation. I, again, it doesn't look the greatest, at least in my eye, but I appreciate that it exists and that those animators get the time and energy to like explore the animation medium as much as they do. And with someone like League Waiter, again, the, the narration I think is the most grating part to me. It's used a lot. And if you are not completely bought into the memories of it all, the nostalgia of it all, and the time frame of it all, it's going to get grading, i.e. like it did with me. But either way, I'm gracious that it exists. It is streaming right now on Netflix if you guys want to go check that out. It's an animated movie that I don't think is getting talked about as much. There is absolutely worth checking it out. Okay, guns ablazing. Fire is also ablazing. We are leading into a new territory. Enough sweetness. No more sweetness, okay? We've brought sort of horror and comedy to you. We've brought the unbearable weight. I don't know what kind of genre that lives in, I guess, like meta or something. (laughs) And we brought A24 to you. We just wrapped our animation corner. Let me tell you, we are heading off into our foreign feature corner, and we are going to discuss Netflix's, what what I'm assuming is like a super hit, right? Because that's what the description says. We are talking about RRR. I'm not a pirate. This stands for rise roar revolt let's tell our listeners the plot together okay so let me tell you out out the gate this is what i think the first point is we've got two badasses who come from different areas of society one of them more from like the village um we should tell you what this takes place during the uh, british raj in the 1920s correct and isn't this this is a fictional future right where there is a harsh like divide between um, the classes, like it whether is, you are for the government. We have two revolutionaries who we'll get into, but who did not actually meet in real life, but who, this is basically the story of like, what if they did meet and have a time? Yeah, so this is the story of them, these two badasses, like I say, they form a brotherhood that is distinguished by the three R's of this movie. One being the fire, one being the water. And what's the last one, Brandon? I thought it was just the fire and water meeting and the R in the middle is kind of the oh. majority of persons. <laughs> oh, I thought. You know what? No, no, no. That's that's what it is, okay? Plot device said it best. So anyways, um, they both meet the fire. I like that this movie kind of broke itself up and the fact that it used the three R's is just delightful. Uh, the fire is really about what, what sparks interest in these two revolutionaries to take action and what drives them together and... Um, we'll get to kind of like the meat of it soon, but we're still just throwing plot at you. So the fire is all about what, what drives them together and really introducing their worlds to us. Uh, Brandon, what is the water about? Just say real quickly, we have a junior NGR as Beam, who is the, um, the kind of tribal force as the water in here. And then we have uh, Ramcharan as Raju, who is the fire. Raju is essentially coming from the police background. He's working for the British Raj. He's desperate for a promotion to prove himself. And Bean is a tribal leader who is going into, uh, who is going into the city to try and find a young girl who was taken by the British, uh, by the British special forces. 
And this movie has very large, huge, like musical numbers in it, which I was so fascinated by. I'm like, is this, I was like, is this commonplace for a movie like this? Like how, how can I take in um, a, a different markets? Like, uh, piece of cinema without putting too much like American judgment on it, you know? So that's what I was really excited for was getting this raw, raw viewing, raw experience of, of film that, um, I wouldn't been, wouldn't have been able to see in theaters here in America. Brandon, this like cause waves in your circles or how did you first know about this? I know that I brought it up to cover on the pod, but I, you had already seen it. So I was interested in like, how did that come across to your view? Let me be crystal quick. And I don't know about you as well. How familiar are you with, uh, Telugu cinema? I, I learned the word today from you, Brandon. Okay, because I was not. I assumed it was Bollywood. It's apparently not necessarily. There's a, there's a whole section of Indian cinema that I am woefully ignorant of, which is why I wasn't necessarily going to cover this actually. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, a ton of people online were bringing this up. They were talking about the dance sequences and the action sequences and like the historical relevancy involved. Just all of a sudden, this movie RRR came out of nowhere, and I was like. Okay, what is this? If you watch it on Netflix, which is available here in the States, it is in the Hindi dub. So it is some in English, mostly in Hindi dubbed over Telugu. So it's not the official, uh, it's not the official dialogue, but it is there. Just want to point that out. And yeah, after seeing this, this over three hour monstrosity of a movie, uh, it's awesome. It's so good. It's so awesome. It is, it's the type of, I guess, heavy hitting action that is for for all intents and purposes like impossible ridiculous like eccentric but don't you want your action action adventures to feel like that don't you want to imagine yourself being the badass who can kick like three different people off you without breaking a sweat or lead a dance number at a wedding that you just got invited to the day before and have everyone like engaged in a dance battle with you like this is it's so intense and in your face but you don't want to, you never want to look away. It's so colorful. It is, um, it's a lot of things that I was not expecting going into it. I had mediocre expectations. I was like, I hope that it's just enter- at least entertaining. And then I ended up getting like a three hour movie, which doesn't feel like three hours, Brandon. I'm going to make the argument right? that it feels shorter because whenever we got to a dialogue heavy scene, I thought to myself, oh, damn, like, we've been in an action sequence for the past like 25 minutes or, or a dance number or like something like that. There's so much to look at in this film that you're, you're always entertained. And it's not just strictly by the moving plot. It's by these, these big set pieces that they're able to use. And uh, that in itself, I think is impressive. The fact that it's three hours and the movie feels like it included just enough um, without, without overbearing you as a viewer. Even the smaller moments are heightened and filled with a sense of melodrama, but you never feel taken out of it. From from the very first scene, it really does feel like you're setting up to something huge. And the very next two scenes, which establish our two main characters, are both some of the best action sequences of the past 10 years. Brandon is speaking facts, ladies and gentlemen. The action here is like when you watch these films you want you're going to remember their names because they have the strength of some of your favorite like comic book heroes um and the likability too like these are two characters that i was i was admiring and i was like oh my gosh like they are a they're handsome as hell and b they're just powerful and respected in their own regard um yes they have conflicting ambitions and we're going to get to their relationship as a matter of fact you know like let's i'm going to introduce their relationship you know they do have this moment that connects them seemingly for life when they save a boy who has uh, 
surrounded by fire at the collapse of a train off of a bridge. Like this is, there's big things that happen in this movie, but um, (laughs) they both do like this black widow, like jump over the ledge, holding a rope. You hold the flag, throw it to me. I'm going to cover this and then throw the boy back to you. And it is just insane. And they do all this awful look. Like there's no, there's no scene with like, all right, you do that. No, it's literally a look and then Uh do it. Uh huh. And I'm not going to fault it for that. It is so powerful for that. Um, and then, you know, they, they develop this bond very quickly and they go on these adventures together. They like go to that party. Um, and they're able to just have this dynamic between them that does feel like actual brotherhood and actual like love and like tenderness there. But there is a moment in the, in the middle of the film, of course, because it is revealed that Raju is actually one of the armed forces members and Beam is is leading a revolt against them. So that immediately drives a wedge in their relationship where now Raju has to stand up to his former best friend, his, his most trusted ally that we have, like that's what we're led to believe given what they show us on screen. And it leads to a showdown that I think is, would you say it's cliche, Brandon? That's the thing is that it should be and it objectively is, but you don't feel like it is. Like, but you again, don't feel it, it. The emotions are so heightened here that even something as cliche as like the liar revealed trope somehow feels fresh in this character, in these characters' minds. Like, they are so charismatic and so of their own skill sets that when it happens, you feel the shock within them. And I think that is, again, such a credit to SS Rajamuli, who wrote and directed this and just, I think, <sighs> manages to maintain that sense of heightened emotionality and heightened sense of fear and scale in such a way that I have not seen in most American films. And it's uh, friends to enemies to like frenemies. And you're going to be a fan of these two like superstars when you watch this movie. I know I was in every scene that I saw, even the like insane, like back piggybacking, like freaking action sequence. Like that was that to me, like I watched that and that's when I went like, okay, like this is a little... This is a little much, but I'm I'll just still going to keep watching. <laughs> I'll just say the poster is a bit of a spoiler. Don't look how that scene happens. Yo, it is, oh, needless to say, this movie's powerful. It is huge. It has breaks within the movie that help you realize just how involved this must have been for the communities at large. I'm talking like they're huge numbers where they had to have at least like hundreds of people on set. Yeah. Like it, it is so wild to me. The CGI, I think, holds up for what you need do the animals look all realistic all of which by the way are cgi there's no real animal yeah um yeah they look good but you can tell between some of the backgrounds and like a lot of the movements especially when it turns like slow-mo sequences which it does a lot you can tell that there's some points where the animation kind of falter like it doesn't really know which eyelash to turn or which limb to move in a right way and that's if you're really looking closely like otherwise if you are fully invested in the action as you probably will be you're not really going to have an issue All right. I'm sitting here just like grinning ear to ear. If this is an introduction for myself and for any listeners who go out on a whim and check this out. Yes, I know it's three hours, but hey, if you stop yourself at the title cards, I'm pretty sure you could watch this like an episodic. Just take notes because maybe you'll forget what action sequences just happened. Uh, Give my movie theaters more Telugu cinema. Part of respecting this space is respecting all the different cultural interpretations in this space. So I'm happy for us to cover this in the pod, Brandon. I want us to maybe maybe make something of including, you know, different markets of filmmaking and speaking to them. For me, this is going to be a... <laughs> um, I'm going to give this... Uh, 
I think that it is a nine out of 10 for myself. I do see like, I do see some internal conflict with me returning to this on like a random weekend night and being like, yeah, oh, let's I'm sit sure. down and watch, let's sit down and watch RRR. Like, whoa, like that's three hours, dude. Like, really? Like, I only bought one bag of chips. Like, what are you talking about? Um, but I would gladly go back and watch specific sequences of this film. That dance during the- We didn't during, even talk about the dance scene. We didn't oh even talk God. about the dance. Like, there's a wedding and they end up like, and lyrically, like all of the songs speak to the plot and like the advancement of these characters- which I'm like, we rarely have that in an action movie from us, like we or from us, <laughs> from like um, uh, from Hollywood. Like we don't have music that speaks to what you see on screen. It's more so the emotions of what you see on screen, if that. Um, so, oh my gosh, yeah, no, there's this dance number where Raju leads everyone in this. Uh, I wish I was. I wish I was more. Um, educated in this space so I could speak to you know what specific styles they present on screen but why don't you just go and experience it and feel all of this excitement and energy from um, a market that we are largely like unintroduced to for me this is a strong nine and a half out of ten I had just so so much fun with this movie like you I don't know how often I'm going to revisit it because again it's three and a half hours of completely heightened to the brim action sequences with great subtext and great writing too but again, that I don't know if I'd come back as much. That being said, it is also, as you said, an experience. You need to watch this. Junior NTR and Ram Charan are two of the best performances you will see all year. Their charisma is off the charts. The action sequences that Raja Muli directs are of the pinnacle of the style that we've seen in the last 10 years. It's maximalist as hell. It's anti-imperial as hell. It's incredibly rootable. And even if you necessarily don't want to sit within three hours, again, as Noah so eloquently pointed out, you don't need to. You can break it up into two or three chunks if you need to. The Hindi dub is on Netflix. If you really want to see the Telugu version, you can probably seek it out at like some limited screening somewhere or other. I might get a VOD release. I'm not sure. But it's actually a really solid dub. You, it won't feel too distracting to you, but please, you need to experience this. That's going to go ahead and wrap our movie portion of reviews for today. Uh, we are still discussing some TV, though, so we're going to toss over to the fun streaming wars, Hulu, Disney+, Plus, Paramount+, Plus. who's going to win, Discovery+. Plus. Stay tuned. We are talking Hulu's very own season two of Only Murders in the Building. Uh, the last time we left off, Brandon and I had just touched upon the early episodes of the second season as the rest of it had been yet to release. But now, with the finale having just aired this previous week of us recording we are ready to provide you all the details all of the spoilers uh this is going to be a discussion about season two and its entirety i will toss over now to my co-host brandon oh, i still can get that on my head anyway oh, it, that is that was wonderful brandon hey little snaps to you snaps to you Thank you. I'm no Asadona Kozla, but I attempt to be. A lot of things go down. A lot of filler episodes that seem like filler and then get tied into a lot later that, that try to make the mystery pay off. Noah, I want to go over to you because, as a spoiler, I really like the season. I really do. I actually had a bit more fun with it than the first season, but I also like how consistent that first season is in terms of really tight writing. Did all of those elements coming together, especially in those final two episodes, coming into it from that second half, where was your mind at? So this is one of those shows, Brandon, I am going to answer your question just in a, as we do on this pod in a very large roundabout kind of way. But what I'm going to talk about first is this is one of those shows where if you go on IMDb, you can, you can see what casting remains this like the same across seasons. Uh, we have Martin Short, we have um, Selena well, Gomez. Trio. Yeah, of course, the main trio. But I just wanted to share that it's it becomes difficult then when you have these 
character actors coming in, like somebody like Cara Delevingne or Aaron, mm-hmm. I think his name was Hernandez, who played uh, uh, Como's friend from the first season. We're not going to test ourselves. This Oscar. isn't Oscar, only murders trivia. Good job, Brandon. But I'm just going to say that it becomes difficult because there are those standout performances and portrayals that we receive but it's just a one-off like it's just episode seven of season two and then it becomes a shame because i we can't you know give that actor respects unless we like write down the name so this is just to that point that this show does a wonderful job of keeping the main trio as you know the spotlighted crew they are the ones they are the producers of this podcast and so to see that not plot devices but of their podcast only murders i know i know and <laughs> to see it's better them, for us to see them be so formulaic in their approach to storytelling specifically um i almost want to specifically oliver putnam it is he i think is m- the most me out of the three although brazos like i do <laughs> sometimes i do go like down his lane of thinking as well but um i like how this show juggles just the dynamic of the trio but it never loses sight of the fact that this is a building of characters and they're going to come and go and be very purposeful whenever they show up so just understand that if you're signing up for the show uh, you won't be let down even in the second half of season two where characters new and old take up the screen and you're still just as invested in the story they're telling um when it comes to like initial thoughts to season two i would say that yeah they are introducing some new players like brazos's daughter like pseudo daughter um i was interested into how important she was going to be like are we ultimately going to look to her as like one of the prime suspects or will we actually expect her to be our next victim? Like there was kind of that teeter-totter of, of what to expect from her. I liked Cara Delevingne's addition as the romantic interest I for, too, actually. for Mabel in this season. I thought that it worked so well. And I loved, I loved the reactions from Oliver and uh, Brazos when <laughs> they realized that Mabel is bisexual. Just the, this, this script, the writing team behind the script is just so genius, but it takes the actors to kind of, you know, carry the torch the, the, the entire way. So um, they don't let up. I mean, did I think that the ultimate reveal and connecti- connectivity of it all with Jan being the killer of season one and season two's killer being we'll get there. I'm conflicted, Brandon, because the very last episode, there's standout moments before we get to the finale and we'll discuss that. But just to you, Brandon, now the final episode pulls a couple like false accusations, but that's to bring out who the real killer is. I really enjoyed that, but it kind of made me go like, aha, aha, aha. Like by the time the third one came, I was like, wait, like, now I now I don't know. I, I stand by my words, but I said the last time we talked about the show, this is really a comfort watch for me. When it's on, the music is delightful. It never like strays me from the path. Uh, I remain interested. I remain invested. And I think for a show, oh my God, for the show about like a murder podcast, they do so much with it. Even bringing back their fanboys from the first season. And teasing that one of them is more important than the last. It, it was... Marv's character is the one where I kind of felt eh about the whole thing. I kind of felt like they were playing off his very clear mental illness and very clear depressive state as kind of a joke by the very end, which I wish they had done something with. But other than that, I think all the supporting cast really get a play in this. I like Howard now. Like, I who knew it took just having him having a theater background and having a love interest to actually make me think he's a cool character. Um, I actually, like you said, I like Cara Delevingne a lot in this. I've never really loved her as an actress, but I think here... Who knew playing off Selena Gomez of all people was actually going to be a great chemistry read? Like, 
Hey, and it's amazing how similar she is. Did you get like Emma Stone's Cruella from her? Because I thought the two of them, like if you have them both doing their characters, Emma Stone's Cruella and Cara Delevingne's, whoever she is in this season, I thought they were like very much like the same. Like I don't know. It was their delivery. It was a lot of just similarities that I noticed there, but it gave me a different taste of Delevingne that I think other iterations or other characters that she has played, I haven't get, been able to take this away from that. I think Delavine, and again, I'm not going to say she's great in this. I think she is still towards the lower tip, but I think she works in this show, I think, because the writers know how to nail her sense of like glam and poise that she just has kind of as a natural presence, but also with a couple of like legitimately quirky bits and like really good one-liners here and there. Like there's, um, oh God, what is it? When the killer is actually revealed and she's, you know, she's sitting in the party, just like, oh, I'm Welsh or something like that. Like just stuff like that. Like I know I'm paraphrasing, but things like that, I think make her more likable and make her more of a dynamic presence. I agree. I think that Howard had more time to shine. This is Michael uh, Cyril Creighton, uh, who plays like he is. He is the nosy neighbor with the, He's cat the nosy neighbor, and always like trying to get in everybody's business. But then he ends up uh, during an episode where they have a blackout, which credit to the writing just like ends up alley-ooping uh, a blackout that was mentioned before because Oliver loved to host Son of Sam like game night and that always included a blackout. It's just the show is so clever. I just I can't say that enough. But yeah, Howard ends up uh, like bunking up with like one of his neighbors and you think that everything's going perfect until it's until you learn that like the perfect neighbor is actually deathly allergic to Howard's best friend his cat give howard happiness and then also get him away because he's annoying Uh, annoying. but he's a good kind of annoying i have to apologize i said aaron hernandez but i absolutely meant aaron dominguez uh fault on my part just uh misremembering that was oscar torres as from the first though from the first season who never pops up in season two like we have mentioned he never pops up never pops up um brandon how did you like the the isolated episode between Mabel and Theo and like their journey into that, uh, that like rundown carnival or wherever they were in an effort to catch the glitter covered killer. Like how, how did you feel about that? I really did like it. And I, I feel icky being like, I wouldn't mind if they got together because of Theo's character, but like they have good chemistry. Like they clearly have some kind of shared trauma. You could do something with that. Um, I really like the ending of that episode where it's, um, where it's Mabel hiding in the lockers and you just, that is a masterclass intention right there. I do think I wish that there was a bit more in terms of like Theo's disappointment in his dad. Like maybe Theo did know about the whole Oliver adoption thing that we might get into. Like, and then even on Mabel's side, I wish there was a bit more of, you know, her blackouts and her kind of, um, her kind of condition around that. Cause I never thought we got a really clear cut answer to that beyond, oh, this could be a thing. And then it doesn't really wind up. It introduces and then also ties up that one element of Mabel's character where, yeah, she sometimes has blackouts and it's because of she puts herself in a defensive state and sometimes she stabs somebody with a knitting needle. But then we only, then we spend about maybe less than 10 minutes learning about Mabel's backstory with her dad and how he had a terminal illness and how they've always worked on puzzles. And then one day he had just been ill and he wasn't able to do all the things that she expected of him. And then he passes. And so that was, it was so I guess if it's like a blink and you miss it moment, because let's say you were doing something during that episode, like you got up and you just did something and half watched it. You would have missed like an essential part of what I hope is like Mabel's arc to recovery or like understanding herself even more, which is a journey she went on alongside Theo, or at least during that episode. Um, It's a credit to how dense these episodes actually are. 
I wanted to bring up, they keep up with the routine of showing us an attribute or a reaction from who the killer is, like through flashbacks or just through memory. So I'm saying, for example, the killer sneezed around cats. The Mm. killer got bumped in the shoulder by Mabel. The killer has um, an affinity with art, like high art pieces. And then later throughout the show, they'll demonstrate how it could be multiple different people. So like for one, I mean, there was a detective and he has a, like, he has like a sensitive shoulder or something. And so you're thinking, oh, it must've been him or another character sneezes. And now you believing that that's the killer. And so it's, it's tricking the audiences into down these different lanes of who done it in addition to all of the investigate investigating going on by our trio. Brandon, my question to you is, is that overdone? Or do you think that they pull that card out just enough? Because that's kind of paying to the fact of why at the finale I went, aha, 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 because I'm trying to keep up with these clues. They're showing me who it like kind of like big flaring flags, like, hey, it might be them. Uh, but how do you feel about how they approach like that, that element of the series? I think they overdid it with certain characters and underdid it with others in that <clears throat> Like I like uh, I like Alice as a character. I wish there had been one uh, one or two other moments where, like, after we see you know her for what it is exposing Mabel's trauma as art and like that whole you know fallout no. scene. I wish there had been another clue of just like oh leaning into her like we get in the finale. Brandon, she straight up demonstrated an art scene at the murder at the scene of the murder, dressed in Mabel's clothes with a fake dead bunny on the floor. It's yeah, that it's was that was a lot. I was like, whoa, Alice. Like, I I thought you had a little bit of bad in you, but you just went off the deep end. Like, that was wild for Mabel to see. Like, I felt so bad for her. And maybe that's supposed to be a red herring, but I feel like after that point, Alice is so entrenched into Mabel's character. I couldn't imagine that per se, just because we were so tied together. And then on the other side of that coin, it's uh, Rappaport's character. I keep forgetting the police officer. But yeah. you keep getting hints as to him. And Krebs. eventually... Krebs, thank you. And he is tied to it, but not in the direct sense that you might think he is. There's still more to it. And so I felt like, as I described to my roommate, first season is kind of a, as pretty much a perfect circle as you can get with how everything kind of loops together. This has a couple wobbles in it where I kind of felt, oh, that detail should be here, or maybe that should be later in the story. And One messy detail that I think that was included in this season is the holes in the wall. I think that that's one that mm. it just felt especially near the end when you're starting to learn why the pieces matter, the spaces in the walls and like Brazos, his daughter being there, that stuff kind of seems like it was more of an afterthought rather than like part of the initial story. When we're looking at the details like that, yeah, I think that season one was definitely more structured and more intentional with its teases. Um, in season two, that was one that I mentioned. It was the the holes in the wall. There was a second one, um, Oh, Amy Poehler. Amy, not Amy Poehler. Amy, Amy Schumer. Schumer. Where did she go, Brandon? She was in the elevator and we had a whole scene with her. And then I, I, did I blink? Like, where did she go? That was just odd to me because by the end of it, I was like, oh, maybe it's Amy Schumer because I haven't seen her in a while. I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. This The series is going to end. What? Paul Rudd is in season. What? Uh Oh, okay, I guess there's no more Honestly, Schumer. That's what I thought is when Oliver was getting called, like, starring who? And then you see Amy Schumer on stage. <laughs> Um, but please tell me more about like, did this season live up to expectations after season one closed? Did you think it retained some of the best elements or did you feel like they kind of, you know, they're, they're starting to skew, you know, what are your opinions here? 
I think in pretty much everything that it tries to follow with season one, it maintains. I think in terms of, because what did we all really gravitate to season one? We gravitated towards the main trio. We gravitated towards the whodunit elements. We gravitated towards the humor. And we gravitated towards the atmosphere of the Arconia. And, and I the think, music. And, and the music. And, well, I didn't hear everyone praising about the music, but we certainly did. Um, and I think just when you lock those elements into key, yeah, season two is a complete success. I, you know, somehow, you know, Short, Martin, and Gomez are just still so freaking funny and charming together. Like, again, just every scene of them locking evidence is just gold. And even if it is basically, you know, Short and Martin locking their two brain cells and Selena Gomez every once in a while just going, you guys are idiots. I could still watch that for hours. Like, they just find a and way to make that so entertaining. It's a lot of that, but you never get sick of it. How could you? Never you? Like Brazos doing a 180 jump spin and saying, you're the killer. And he's pointing at some <laughs> random person. So then he's like, I'm sorry, I got disoriented. You're, you're the, the and killer. Then, and then he points to somebody like stuff like that just has me cracking up because it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, but it's so believable because these are just two old guys like trying their best to keep up with uh, the rest of the world that's going on. And yet there is just enough like real quote unquote material to actually matter. Like we talked about the Mabel Alice stuff, but like what about Oliver? Like Oliver finds out, spoiler, that he's not Will's dad. And of all people who are his son's father, it's Teddy. It's Teddy. It's the guy who told him like, I'm going to, I'm going to F you so hard. You'll never see it coming. That, that was an awkward exchange, but I kind of really liked it. Cause he just, he's being so uncomfortable <laughs> to Oliver. Like literally, I, I don't know about you. I found every scene between, uh, between Oliver and William, just super precious. Like they just have a great father son dynamic. You can tell they've done a lot of healing since season one. And then this whole thing gets thrown into the mix. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Cause like they're, they're just that strong. I love that. Will and Oliver's relationship, the fact that it's founded in the theater is just so lovely. Like, obviously, I, I love theater. So when they're surrounded in that space and they can communicate with each other on that level, I like seeing it. It makes me feel like this is very real. And I'm happy for that to be continued because our big teaser for season three is for one, the casting, which I only heard announcements for very recently on socials. I saw Paul Rudd will be I joining spoiled. Only Murders in the Building season three. And I was like, what? Like, I can't wait to see him. And then we get that. We actually get a tease at the end of the finale here in season two. And it is Oliver putting on a show, you know, whatever big theater that he's doing. And he's knocking on this star's door, you know, letting him know, hey, like, we got to go ahead and get this show going. Only for none other than Ant-Man, Paul Rudd to come swooping out of that door. He's kind of carrying himself a little arrogantly. So I'd be curious as to like what character he's portraying. I was just expecting like another Paul Rudd. Um, but no, he goes out on stage and before you know it, he's choking up and he's dropping dead. And we just have Mabel standing up in the crowd saying like, not this again, please. But us as audience members are going, hell yeah, like yes, give us a season three and have it be in the theater. It's the Phantom of the Opera, baby. I cannot wait for it. Uh, on Brandon, the one did hand, you like that tease? On the one hand, I, I don't like that we're staying away from the Arconia because I think, again, like we kind of mentioned earlier, the kind of secret passageways, the secret history with Brazos' father, like there was so much, that, and even with Nina's uh, renovations, which we didn't really get a ton of closure to it's kind of just going to happen at this point i wish we had gotten closure to that or at least kind of and we still might in season three we very well could go back to the arconia but i do agree like there is something fresh about taking the only murders in the building and just moving buildings like there is something cool about that and paul rudd who i remember when uh, babysitters club this has nothing to do with anything when babysitters club season three was initially coming out a lot of people were pegging uh paul rudd as like the deadbeat dad figure of the main character and i was like 
who do like more villainous Paul Rudd work. And seeing this, it seems like, yeah, he's not, you know, charming old Paul Rudd. Something that is a living character, the Arconia, um, I would actually be pleased to see that because we've gotten so familiar with it now that it would feel strange, I agree, if we just move to a new place, new set, new location. Um, I definitely, I love all of our members in the Arconia. Like, I, I want to keep up with them. Maybe, if I can theorize a plot line, maybe, um, oh God, I'm forgetting Paul Rudd's character, but maybe his character was set to move into the Arconia and then when he died, like there became like a vacancy. Cause remember we hear, um, we hear Nita talking about just like, yeah, it's too expensive. Like we're constantly trying to fill up rooms and there's that kind of thing. So maybe Paul Rudd's character has more of a connection to the building than we initially assumed. I don't even know what I gave the first season, but I assumed I gave it something high. Um, here I am enjoying a lot of the same. I think that the newly introduced characters are used very well and they're not overdone to a point where I miss the original trio. I think the show still knows what it is and it knows how to continue giving us hilarity, sincerity, and give me another itty word, uh, serendipity. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know another word for that, but this is going to be very easily a nine out of 10 for me. This is a splendid show. Um, we didn't even brush upon Tina's Tina Fey's character, but once you watch the show, you'll realize um, the kind of diabolical nature of her and I eat that stuff up. So yeah, this is a very enjoyable show. I'm going to give it a nine. For me, I also don't remember my score for the first season, but yeah, solid eight and a half. So much fun. I thoroughly enjoyed it all. Again, as I mentioned, everything that you liked about season one is there. Maybe not amplified, except for some of the story beats, which get a little bit messy. Again, some of the art world stuff, some of, you know, Mabel's backstory. But other than that, like all of the major character beats, all of the major character beats, I think are still perfectly there. Again, the main cast chemistry is great. The new characters are super fun. The returning characters get some more uh, substance to them. And again, the murder mystery never gets tiring. Even when, you know, there's meta context, just like, you spent three episodes doing nothing. Well, have we though? Like there's little breadcrumbs in there that just lean you in. And again, the episodes are all, you know, 30, 35 episodes long. So it's super easy to fly by. And as set up for season three, yeah, I I totally heard Noah, this is a comfort show. I cannot wait to just sit down and binge all of season three when it actually comes out. If you are all interested and you have not been spoiled by all of this, All the episodes are currently up on Hulu. Go watch them. Let us know what you think. And that'll do it for episode 34 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Listen, while we've got you here, just do us a quick favor. We're on social media. We've got updates that you can get all of the, you know, updates for episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RSS feed. That's where you can find the actual show along with our side series, directorial debuts, and all of our mini-sodes. Speaking of mini-sodes, as you're hearing this, you can check out and celebrate our one-year anniversary with our special Q&A that we did with Sky Merida and Samantha and Kravaya, who came back to the show with questions from you guys. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod, and on our new TikTok page at Plot Devices Podcast. I want to turn it over to our social media manager and my fantastic co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, uh, we got anything to plug in? What are you watching nowadays and what should people know about? Hello, everyone. Um, yes, please do go and check out our social feeds. Always working to get more stuff up there for y'all to enjoy. Uh, spread the word with Plot Devices Podcast. We love celebrating our one year here and we hope to just strive for another year of, of great coverage um, and good times having discussions I am reluctant to start She-Hulk, but if you have some comments about whether I should or I shouldn't, please do drop us a DM and I will gladly respond. Uh, But other than that, I'm kicking back. I am feeling the Arizona heat and staying in the shade. So uh, if you want to give me a follow, you can follow me on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. I talk about just random shenanigans, movies here and there, but I'll appreciate the follow and we can have some discourse.
This is your PSA if you're living basically anywhere nowadays. Stay hydrated. It's still summer. And I forget that a lot, which is why this is for me. You guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Go follow my band at Kibblebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram as well. Our debut single, Wish, is out now. The album coming out very soon. We're working on it. We actually mean that this time. Uh, and go follow my work at ASU Odyssey if you're curious. Again, all the social media links will be down in the description. Go check them out. And with that being said, our one year anniversary, episode 34 of Block Devices has been complete. Thank you all so much for checking it out. From myself, from Noah Guzman, this has been Block Devices. I'll catch you guys next time.